This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. Do you drive high? It's a question that CDOT posed to a Pueblo dispensary worker named Eric recently. Uh, yes, I have driven high before. Well, Eric says he hasn't driven high in a while. He knows it's not the safest thing to do. I do think driving high is a little bit dangerous, um, and there are you know, definitely the huge consequences for it. Um, but uh, I think it also depends on the user as well. Eric spoke at a town hall organized by the state's transportation department on drugged driving called a cannabis conversation. It's a new approach by the department to understand and educate marijuana users about driving while high. Sam Cole joins us from CDOT. Sam, welcome. Good morning. Are vehicle deaths due to marijuana use up since legalization here in Colorado? We don't know is the easy answer just because data over the last few years um, has been inconsistent. But Nathan, what is most important is what we know in 2016. And in 2016, there were 51 fatalities that involved a driver who had active THC in his or her system above 5 nanogram. 5 nanogram is the state level of impairment. And it's interesting you note that uh, in terms of the data is difficult to find. Uh, Jack Reed is a statistical analyst for Colorado's Department of Public Safety, and he said it's really been difficult gleaning accurate data on driving high. One of the issues we've encountered in Colorado is that prior to legalization, we did not do a good job collecting information on what was actually impairing the person. And so we are having difficult time right now really saying, you know what, this is the number of people who are driving high and are arrested for driving high in Colorado. And so honestly, that that lack of data um, is probably one of the biggest things that we learned. Does that make it difficult for CDOT to understand the scope of this problem and to find ways to address it? No. I mean, the fact that we have 51 deaths linked to an um, impaired driver on marijuana says a lot. Um, but to put it in perspective, alcohol is really king when it comes to impaired driving. Just to put this a number out there, we had 161 traffic fatalities linked to an alcohol-impaired driver in that same year. So alcohol is definitely more of a problem but complicating it more is that people don't don't just do alcohol and they don't just do marijuana. They often do them together. And when you do um, alcohol and marijuana together, it amplifies the impairment that you're going to experience. And then Jack had mentioned um, arrest data. So we're just talking about fatalities, those fatal, awful crashes. Mm-hmm. When you look at just people that are pulled over for DUI, you know, we have a nice snapshot from State Patrol. When they, back in 2014, when they started um, uh, re- um, recording all this information, about 12% of their DUIs were for marijuana. That actually spiked up to about 20% um, last year, but it actually has come down to about 15, 16%. So that's a nice little snapshot, too. Is there any reason why it's come down? Is it is it because of educating the public about this? Or? I think it's just kind of the nature of our of our roadways and the time of year it is. But one reason why it likely went up is because State Patrol does a great job training all of their officers on advanced roadside detection for drugs. And, and we'll get to that here in just a second. Mm-hmm. But I want to talk about these cannabis conversations. They took place around the state, uh, the most recent in Fort Collins. What were you hoping to gain from talking directly to the public about this? Right. Well, CDOT has been doing public awareness campaigns around the dangers of driving high for several years, and we've had mixed success. Um, We know that now 91 percent of marijuana users know you can get a a DUI for driving high, but their behavior isn't changing. They routinely report to us driving high within the last 30 days. Actually, over 50 percent of marijuana users tell us that. 
So we wanted to take a step back and do the cannabis conversation, go into the community and talk to the community, especially marijuana users, on why they drive high. Why do you don't think it's dangerous? Why aren't people holding you accountable to your actions? So we really want to kind of understand kind of the values, the beliefs, the practices that marijuana users um, experience in their everyday lives when it comes to driving high. And one of the people you spoke to, his name is Matt. You spoke to him at the Pueblo meeting. He said he has driven uh, well high. And you asked him why he thinks people get behind the wheel after ingesting marijuana. I think it's a level of they're not out of control. They feel they're high. But at the same time, I don't think, you know, they have a, a basic grasp of it. it's a good idea. So in a sense, if like, you're drunk, it's easier to call a cab. That's more um, common for people to be under influence of alcohol. But weed is more or less, oh, I can handle it. But that's where, since everything is legal now, that we have to have kind of those gray lines kind of, you know, figured out. Almost like it's a, he doesn't really know what to do. You know, he knows that if I'm, you know, drunk, I'm going to call a cab. If I'm high, what do do I do? Yeah, right. Well, there's definitely a very pronounced stigma against driving drunk in our society. The same stigma does not exist for, for driving high. And a lot of people just, you know, take it on their own and they're like, well, I feel more comfortable. I'm more relaxed. Um, and I really don't think it's dangerous. And really, Nathan, the $64 million question is, you know, there's a point where somebody is very impaired, too impaired to drive. But the science linking marijuana level to an impairment level just isn't there. Is there a sense like a group like like MAD, Mothers Against Drunk Driving, would get involved somehow in this? Yeah, MAD is involved. MAD, this is something that's on MAD's radar too. But that's you, you kind of hit the nail on the head with that one. We only have four years of public education around marijuana and driving high. We've got 20, 30 years around drunk driving. And CDOT doesn't want to wait. We don't want to wait 10, 20 years to see that behavior change. We want to kind of dive into this right now, do a lot of listening so that we can deliver a public awareness campaign next year that really is more effective and actually moves that needle on behavior. Because you're finding out what people are actually thinking and using that to educate them in a sense. Mm -hmm. Let's say someone is pulled over for driving high. I mean, I've seen studies that THC remains in a person's system for quite a long time. Is there a roadside test that will determine if someone is actually still high when they're detained on the roadside? No, there's no roadside device. Plus, you mentioned um, people pulling over for driving high. No one's pulled over for driving high. They're pulled over for a traffic infraction. They're pulled over because they ran a stop sign or they're weaving going down the road. And then it's up to the officer to figure out, are they impaired? And then if they are impaired... Is it drugs, alcohol, or a combination? And uh, he does that by putting them through the typical roadside maneuvers, the the walk and turn, the balance on your foot and touch your nose. And, uh, you know, a lot of marijuana users have trouble with divided attention, doing two things at once. They also have trouble um, following instructions if they are impaired, if they are very high um, they will have trouble with those roadside maneuvers. And, and are, are police officers and state patrol, are, are they learning how to spot uh, someone who is driving while high? They're much better at it than they used to. Um, we have more officers trained than ever before um, around uh, detection of marijuana impaired drivers. And actually, um, Colorado has almost 300 drug recognition experts, which can be called to the scene of, a, of, of somebody being pulled over a traffic stop to um, really investigate uh, what's going on if the officer on duty just can't really figure it out. 
Plus, you don't know. You really don't know. That's the officer's opinion. If they are, if it's drugs, alcohol, or a combination, if you really don't know until after the blood test is taken, maybe an hour or two after the person's been arrested, and you look for alcohol or um, or marijuana THC in the blood. And we're only talking about active THC. Um, the law in Colorado is five nanograms of active THC. So, as you mentioned, um, marijuana can stay in your body for a long time, yeah. and it's usually a waste product. But um, the impairing substance, uh, Delta-9, can stay in your body for several hours. And actually, the, the health department recommends that you not drive oh, about five to seven hours after using marijuana. And, and the people that you're speaking to at these, these conversations, are they, are they open to talking to you about this stuff? Are they willing to be honest about what they're doing in their life when it comes to, to marijuana use and maybe driving on yeah. it? Yeah. Well, I think there is some distrust when um, government, CDOT, comes forward and wants to have these conversations. That's why we've done something which is a little controversial. We are involving the marijuana industry um, every step along the way. The why mar- is that controversial? Well, I think some people don't – I think they think that we're supporting marijuana if we partner with marijuana industry and we partner with dispensaries. No, we we will never be able to move the needle and affect behavior change unless we really understand marijuana users and their, their beliefs. And the best way to do that is to, to partner both with public health and to partner with individual dispensaries and uh, trade organizations around marijuana. And how has the industry reaction been to this campaign? They've been great. I mean, they really are um, – a lot of dispensaries actually have taken our public information and put it in their, um, you know, on their bud tender counters. And so people kind of see their, you know, what the dangers are of driving high. And as far as these conversations, yeah, they, they are attending, they're speaking, they're serving on panels. And they, I think, are really providing the voice of the typical marijuana user, which helps the marijuana user feel heard. What's next? You gather all this information, you gather all this data, you speak to people in their communities about their marijuana use. What are you going to do with it? How do you use this information? So, yeah, as I mentioned, we are going to be rolling out a new public awareness campaign that we hope is better than the ones that we've done in the past um, because we have mixed results in those and actually can start to change people's behavior, get them to understand that it is dangerous to drive high and um, – and also try to bring in some of the research around around that. But, you know, one of the some of the things that we're hearing at these cannabis conversations is that, you know what, you talk about this research and we don't believe you. And they're right. Um, a lot of the research um, is just not there when it comes to linking a certain um, marijuana level with impairment. They also don't really trust the government as the messenger. That's the other thing we're hearing. And they also don't like um, alcohol being compared to alcohol impairment being compared to marijuana impairment. And it's true. They affect the body very differently, but they both are impairing substances at some level. And so is this the, is this the step of CDOT then to essentially bridge that gap and bridge that divide? I think it is. It is. Um, once we really understand kind of what is it that um, that marijuana users might find offensive about our messages, we'll make sure to avoid those messages and we'll be able to talk to them in ways that they can relate to in future campaigns. I mean, we've we've experienced with, you know, our very first campaign was kind of funny. It kind of showed a guy putting up a TV, a TV set and installing it and it came crashing down and it said, you can put up a TV set while you're while you're high. You just can't drive to the store to, to buy a new one. And then we got really then we got very serious with crashed cars and and a lot of folks didn't like that. So, you know, we want to try a new approach. And, and, and that's what you're going to continue doing. Uh, thanks so much for being here. You're very welcome. CDOT's Sam Sam Cole speaking to me about the department's campaign on driving high. Find a link to their drugged driving website and a CDOT survey at CPR.org later today.
It was a mystery more than 100 years in the making, with a very modern twist. There had long been rumors surrounding the departure of William Slocum as the president of Colorado College in 1917. Joining us now is Jesse Randall, an archivist with the Colorado Springs School. Randall spent more than a decade getting to the bottom of things. Thanks for joining us. Hi. As it turned out, the answer to Slocum's departure at Colorado College is another chapter in a movement that's taken root here and now, 100 years later. Why Mm -hmm. did Slocum leave Colorado College? Well, uh, the Board of Trustees at Colorado College in 1916 asked him to resign. It was done very quietly. Uh, the, the full truth of it was not widely known until, um, you know, recently. Very <laughs> um, recently, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, the information was there all along, but it was somewhat um, hidden, as sometimes happens in archives. Uh, a diligent researcher might have been able to find it um, in the age, in the pre-internet age, but the internet made it... Um, kind of rise forth, along with, of course, the Me Too movement and Time's Up of, so recent, of what, the recent year. what did he do? Well, um, uh, he, you know, at the time, in 1916, the term sexual harassment did not exist. So at the time, they had no clear way of describing the troubles that he was causing. But we, what we would say now is that he sexually harassed hundreds of women, uh, students, Wives of faculty, staff, women instructors at CC, nobody was safe from him. Um, there's some. There's a great quote um, from from a, a faculty member at the time who said, "Let me read this to you." Um, uh, no woman was safe from insult when left alone with him. This is Guy Harry Albright, who was a professor at CC. He says, stories by the hundreds poured in, proving that college girls, women, secretaries, wives of professors, married women in town, pretty or homely, old or young, all were liable to shocking caresses and suggestive language from Slocum. So that was you know. pervasive with him, it sounds like. Yeah, it was. It's, you know, I can't, it's hard to tell um, if he did it from the moment he arrived as president in 1888, or if it was something that he kind of got worse and worse over the years, that's hard to tell. But certainly there were hundreds of complainants about him. How did you come to be involved in this story? Well, when I first came to CC in 2001, I, you know, it was, it was generally known. It was something people talked about at a, you know, at a, meeting or I remember at one point being in um, the sort of mandatory sexual harassment awareness training that all staff go through uh, and it was held in Slocum Hall. <laughs> so at some point, I know at that at that point, somebody was joking around about the irony of that. So people knew about it, but there was no sense that any action was required at this point. I mean, it, it, it had happened long in the past. He'd been pushed out. Um, there were a couple of published articles about, not so much about what the women said about Slocum, but about what happened immediately after he left when uh, the dean at the time, Dean Parsons, was also pushed out. And uh, and then a number of faculty left in protest saying that Dean Parsons had done nothing wrong bringing attention on what Slocum had been doing. And that was the focus because I think nobody knew that those women's statements had been written down, a few of them. Um, I should say it's only about, 
It's only nine statements that we have access to now. At the time, hundreds of women gave um, oral testimony. Twenty-two women allowed their testimony to be written down, and only nine of those women allowed their testimony to then be copied by a local historian um, by the name of James James Hutchinson Care, who was um, kind of keeping track of everything and everybody and all things Colorado Springs, and it's because of CARE's work that we have anything at all about what the women said. So with the information there, with the with these, these transcripts there, why hadn't mm-hmm. the information been found before just recently? Well, like I said, I think it's, I think it's partly um, being able to do kind of really robust searching with, with the Internet that um, allowed us to figure it all out. So in 2010, a researcher was at Special Collections, Joe Dunn, And he did some work on the Parsons case. And when his article came out and I read it, I saw a couple of quotes from from women. And I I was I I didn't think those things had been were available anywhere. You know, those that was the question I had when I heard about the Slocum case. I wasn't so interested in the Parsons Slocum fight. I was much more interested in what what had really happened and um whether it it was an exaggerated, you know, was this real? It, it was. I thought it could never be known. But Joe Dunn's article quoted a couple of women's statements, and so I, I, I fired off an email to him and said, "Where did you get those? You know, that that's that's what I've been after." And it turned out that Joe Dunn had used transcriptions of statements that were in our own archives at CC, but he hadn't hadn't. Um, we hadn't talked about that when he'd visited. Maybe he was afraid that if he mentioned it, I would destroy them. I, I don't know. Maybe he didn't. Oh. Maybe he was being careful. But um, what he'd used were transcriptions at the public library in town that were made decades after um, 1916. And so then from those transcriptions, I was able to track back to the original handwritten statements that Kerr had made in his sort of homemade encyclopedias. And that's, and, and, and that's where... That's the closest we can get to, you know, an audio recording. We we don't have that from 1916, but we do have these hand copied uh, transcriptions. So it's essentially under your nose all along. There there were thousands yes, and the of funny these thing yes, and the funny thing is that so James Hutchinson Care had you know an eight volume, thousands of pages long encyclopedia of Colorado Springs, and one of those volumes I knew I'd hit the jackpot when I found that one of those volumes had a big label on the front that said something like you know sensitive material in here be careful so I, I, I there it was <laughs> it was right there all along but it's not like anyone had had gone through and and looked at the cover of each of these volumes i mean we have you know 800 boxes back there of of various kinds of college archival material so um i i do kind of blame you know some predecessor of mine who didn't call attention to this but at the same time it could be that if 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 some former archivist had called attention to it, maybe the college or somebody would have thought, well, let's destroy this. I don't know. But now is the moment, you know, in the age of Harvey Weinstein, when no one is going to um, put this under the rug. So so it was it was the right time for it to come out. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. We're talking with Jesse Randall, an archivist with Colorado College. She helped bring to light information that showed former university president William Slocum sexually harassed a number of women at the school in around 1917. So what's been the fallout of all of this? What, what has the school done in response to you finding this out? Well, uh, like I said, I didn't really find it out. I just made it easier it for to folks to... Yeah. 
Yeah, you know, what happened was when Har- when the Harvey Weinstein story was getting a lot of attention, I mentioned, you know, it, word of mouth, maybe a blog post or something. There were various there was conversation about our own Harvey Weinstein at CC. And students started stopping by special collections to say, "Hey, I hear we have a sexual harasser." So I got used to kind of bringing out those volumes and showing those photographs and um, you know, it it, it when you have students who are interested in something, you want to make it easier for them to get that information. So I made a website where I said, here's a picture of Maud Bard, the person who said this about Slocum, and here's a picture of Slocum himself, and here's a picture of those care papers, um, just to make it easier. Now, in 2014, so before Harvey Weinstein was in the news so much, there was a student who did a piece on the Slocum affair in uh, um, the student newspaper, The Cipher, and she called for the, the Slocum Hall dormitory to be renamed. And that became the the big push um, around this story now um, was to say, with students and faculty and staff, but students most of all, I think, saying, we don't want to live in a dorm named for this man. And when that... Um, you know, that became a petition. The petition went to the president's office. The president's office took a look and went to the board of trustees and said, hey, what should we do? And the board of trustees, pretty rapidly for a college, um, you know how slow things move in academia, said, yeah, let's change that name. And so they're changing the name. Yep. Um, we don't know what it'll be changed to. Um, that'll be a long process, but they're going to remove the name of Slocum from the dormitory quite soon, I think. And and then wait a couple of years before they decide what the new name will be. How much do you think... Of course, think... it'll cause trouble to maps. <laughs> You'll have to change, change, of course, the names yeah. on maps and things. I, I, I mean, it's a pain, yeah. But I, I want to get back to, to Mrs. Slocum. Yes. What did yes. she know about her husband's affairs and, and how... Oh, I wish... Yeah, yeah. I wish we knew. You know, one can only speculate. Um, I, I certainly, you know, if... If you have an imagination, you can imagine a number of options, but we really don't have any evidence that she knew or didn't know. Um, Maybe she knew that he had affairs but didn't know the extent of it. Um, Maybe she didn't know that he he was what we would now call a a predator. Um, Maybe she was not interested in him that way. Maybe she married him for other reasons than love. Maybe she, you know, who knows? It's, 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 she didn't write anything down. Was this something of a double-edged sword for you? Uh, You've said that Colorado College might have failed if it wasn't for William Slocum and what he did. Yes. Um, And in fact, when, whenever the topic came up pre-Harvey Weinstein, there was kind of an understanding in the room that, well, he did some, maybe he was a little bit of a lecher, but he did so many good things for the college. Without him, the college would have failed. We probably wouldn't have jobs. We wouldn't be here. None of these buildings would have been built. Um, so, so there was a sense that Slocum had done so much good for the college that, that we shouldn't look into this too much. Um, but times change. And, and at this point, um, it was time to listen to what those women said a hundred years ago. He was actually kind of progressive in some of the things he did at the school, I heard. Yeah, you know, what's funny is that, you know, CC was co-ed from the beginning. There were women and men in the earliest classes at CC. There were also African-Americans, Asian-Americans, international students from the very earliest years. 
And it seems likely, actually, I mean, we've seen evidence that Slocum really recruited young women for Colorado College. So, yeah, um, you know, maybe he had some reasons to do that that weren't the greatest, but he did bring a lot of women um, to CC and, and women got their degrees because he encouraged them. When you uncovered these boxes or found that these 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 documents yeah. were there and you began learning about these women and, and, and hearing their mm-hmm. stories, how did it impact you uh, and, and what you thought of Colorado College? Oh, it was it was marvelous, really, to 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 be able to find some names to then be able to go into the yearbooks and find photographs. And, and it became very real um, in my mind before I saw those statements. I'd kind of thought, oh, maybe he, you know, it was such a different time. Maybe these women were so modest that if their college president, you know, complimented their hair, they that was annoying to them or that was, but it wasn't that. You know, you look at those statements and it's serious stuff. Um, it sounds so much, in fact, like what women have been saying in the Me Too movement and the right. Time's Up movement. It's it's the same story. It It's actually shocking how how little has changed. Well, and it's interesting because uh, earlier this year we interviewed a CC professor, Tommy Ann Roberts, who had her own yes. Me Too encounter with Harvey Weinstein yes. when yep. she was a college student in New York in 1984. Listen to this. I was not traumatized in 1984. I, I was certainly terrified in the moment, but I got out of there and and I don't feel traumatized now. But I look back and I think, well, why wasn't I why did I think that that was just sort of an ordinary thing that I ought to have expected should have happened? And so the power of this Me Too hashtag, I think, is the power of sort of calling out the everyday quality of these continua of experiences for girls and women. And I've been very moved by it. Hearing that and knowing what you know now, that must be a, a strong connection for you. Yes, that's it. I mean, Tommy Ann has it right there. And and this is what I see in those women's statements. They're not saying he ruined my life. They're not saying I can't cope with reality anymore. You know, they're saying I dealt with it. I warned the women around me. We all knew about this kind of behavior and how to handle it. You know, nobody is saying their lives were destroyed. It's just part of being a woman in 1916 and and today that you handle this stuff. Um, but it's, it's exciting to think that maybe we can, we can say stop at this point. Thanks so much for joining us. Well, you're welcome. Jesse Randall is an archivist at Colorado College. She joined us to discuss her role in discovering that a former university president, William Slocum, sexually harassed students and staff at the school in the early 1900s. Well, we want to hear from you. The state's pension fund, PARA, is in hot water. It owes way more money than it has. That affects taxpayers and the half a million teachers, law enforcement officers, and others who have PARA. We want your questions as lawmakers try to deal with PARA's problems. What do you want to know as a retiree or just a citizen? Email us, news at CPR.org. That's news at CPR.org. And let us know. Stay with us. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Colorado's jails face a lot of challenges. 
Many are seriously overcrowded, dangerously dilapidated, and full of people with drug convictions. CPR's Allison Sherry recently toured some of the troubled county lockups to look at what they're dealing with. And today she takes us inside the Alamosa County Jail, where the sheriff says the area's opioid crisis is the reason it's so full. On the sunny, wind-whipped day I visited the Alamosa County Jail, the sheriff warned me there could be some action during our tour. So here's the thing with today. I didn't plan this. They have a great big drug bust going on, so we may get a be in the middle of a bunch of arrests. They'll make sure we're safe back there. Okay. So it might be kind of at least exciting for you. Yeah, sounds like it. So they're, they're While that didn't go down in the two hours I visited, drugs are the story here. Alamosa's jail, in the heart of the impoverished San Luis Valley, is perhaps the epicenter of the state's opioid crisis. More than 90% of its inmates are addicted to heroin. This means jailhouse smuggling rings and drug busts are common problems for Jackson. Sheriff and I, you guys all decent? Yes, we are dressed, sir. How are you guys? The women's quarters are the most crowded. Jackson doesn't have enough beds for the number of women he needs to house. Bunks are often stacked three high, leaving the top person with no head clearance. They often choose to sleep on the floor. I mean, I've been doing jail time here since 97, I want to say. And it's been a big change and a lot of difference. Senior person here. Yeah. She runs our place. Yeah, I do. So I know a lot about this place, though. It's like, I'm so glad that they put these in. Know. It's better so, for us. So to her, I'm a new guy because I've only yeah. been the sheriff. This is my fourth year, so. After leaving the pod, I asked Jackson about this woman. Why had she been in and out so much? He had a simple answer. Yeah, she's a revolving door, and she, you know, she gets, you know, off, off drugs and, you know, healthy. We take care of her, and she gets, you know, dental work done, and we get her, and she'll tell you, I'm going to go get high when I get out of here. How do you break that cycle? I don't know. I have a clue. Colorado has experienced a 106% increase in felony drug case filings in five years. In Alamosa, that number has grown a whopping 200%. And the rate of women sentenced to prison for drugs is growing even faster than for men. Christine Donner at the Colorado Criminal Justice Reform Coalition. We're not solving problems, and we're just we're harming people in the process of that. And I don't think people are, are connecting a dot. I don't think we're cruel. I think we're unconscious. Alamosa Sheriff Jackson doesn't get to decide who he takes care of in his jail. And he says people have very few options when it comes to rehab or treatment nearby in the valley. 92% of the intake are addicted to heroin. There's no rehab at all. And in fact, I think the only ones that we ever get people into are uh, the Salvation Army up in Denver and in, in Grand Junction. They have some beds once in a while. Yeah, if we had a 100-bed rehab facility here, that would be huge. University of Colorado clinical pharmacy professor Robert Valick is an expert on opioid abuse. He says Colorado isn't alone in trying to figure out answers. It's a huge problem, I think, everywhere in terms of criminal justice. There's very few places around the country that have, quote, you know, figured it out. The de facto detox centers of, of the country are jails, and those are not the places to be doing this. Let's see if it's safe to go out there. Jackson actually considers himself one of the lucky sheriffs in southern Colorado. He's getting additional jail space. And while that will relieve the overcrowding, he acknowledges it won't solve the biggest problem here. I'm Allison Sherry, CPR News. Around 150 years ago, disputes in Colorado were often settled with a six-shooter or a rifle. In remote areas of the state, the judicial system was weak or even unorganized. Author Kenneth Jessen 
lays out how Colorado went from a lawless and violent Wild West to a civilized society in his new book, Frontier Colorado Gunfights. He joins me from CSU in Fort Collins. Welcome back to Colorado Matters. Ah, uh, Thank you. Your new book lays out 31 true stories of frontier Colorado gunfights with big names like Doc Holliday, Jesse James, Clay Allison, all doing some sort of battle here. These gunfights you write about are violent, but what can they tell us about what life was like in 1800s Colorado? Well, underlying these stories, you learn some lessons. One is the judicial system was uh, pretty weak, particularly in the outlying counties, and uh, law enforcement outside the Denver area, was also quite weak. So a criminal could actually jump counties. And because they didn't communicate very well with each other, this is before radios and everything like that, uh, they could get away pretty easily. Uh, A couple of them went on to create havoc in other states and create crimes and kill people. Why was the justice system so lacking at the time, especially in rural parts of Colorado? Well, this was, uh, we were in the development stages. You know, the state was uh, made a state in 76. So through the 80s and 90s, it took maybe 25, 30 years before we had a good judicial system. And your book talks about how the early Colorado judicial system was regarded before that. Uh, One of the more stunning tales is of Judge Elias Dyer. Uh, He was caught up in trying to bring order to Lake County, Colorado in the 1870s during what was called the Lake County War. Judge Dyer was sitting in the county courthouse, which at that time was at Granite, a little tiny town today. And he was assassinated by five individuals during the Lake County War, and they got away with it. Uh, They never, never were brought to justice. And what exactly was the Lake County War? It was quite intense and went on for a while, didn't it? Well, what it was is a dispute between new arrivals and the pioneers that originally settled Lake County. One of them got shot to death and the house got burned, several people killed, and uh, a vigilante committee was put together and it blocked the roads, wouldn't let people into Lake County, and it just simply escalated into mob violence. And what about the lawmen? Why couldn't they keep order? Why did they continue to let this stuff happen? That's an interesting question. Uh, They were poorly paid, for one thing, and they relied uh, partly on reward money. So, in other words, the reward money that was put forth by citizens and banks and so forth was part of their compensation. And so, anytime there was reward involved, they'd jump on it. But otherwise, uh, the law uh, sometimes was pretty laid back. But we did have several tremendous law officers, and General David Cook of Denver, who was the sheriff for Arapahoe County and also the head of the Denver Detective Agency, was a fantastic, persistent law officer, and also Doc Shores over on the Western Slope. But otherwise, uh, law enforcement was uh, relatively weak, and it was in its embryonic stage. So when we talk about Denver, you said Denver had a pretty good law system and judicial system. Was that just because there were more people there and more money, or or was it something different? Uh, I think it had a combination of different elements. I think the money was there, of course, but uh, David Cook uh, was also an exceptional person. 
And so I think it was a combination of individual, the individual, and also the fact that there was more resources available. He's also the very first person credited with using a telegraph system to telegraph ahead to other law enforcement officers that there was a bad guy headed their way. Kind of like the all points bulletin of the past, huh? Yes, that's right. So he was a pioneer. But surprisingly enough, he's not very well recognized in Colorado history. You tell this story in your book about a mob that dragged accused murderer George Witherill from the jail in Canyon City, and they lynched him, and they tied up and gagged the sheriff in the process. And it seems like mobs were maybe commonplace at this time in Colorado's history. Well, yeah, as I say, outside the Denver area, things were pretty uh, pretty gnarly. And also, if you read the story about the Musgrove gang— uh, the citizens got so upset over the fact that they had arrested these people, but the judicial system being what it is, and that is rather weak, they drug two of those individuals out of their cells and lynched them. One of them was at the Larimer County Street uh, that went over the uh, railroad tracks and over Cherry Creek. So he was lynched right there within sight of everybody in Denver. And so, in other words, they got fed up with uh, the fact that Some of these people were just let free or they escaped from jail. And so they took the law into their own hands. They took the law into their own hands. Uh, Judge Lynch stretching the rope. And so definitely that's that's a moniker for hanging, it sounds like. Absolutely. Yeah. And it came from the frustrations with the system. But, of course, as time went by and we got into uh, World War One and beyond that, uh, things settled down. We got better law enforcement. We got better communication and a much better judicial system. So before law and order improved in Colorado, could could some of those lynched by those mobs actually have been innocent? Could be. Could be. There's another problem being a historian is history is rather elusive. Keep in mind that Back in the day, newspapers were the only form of entertainment. There were were no radio stations, there were no TV stations, no internet, nothing. And so the job of an editor of a newspaper was not only to inform, but also to entertain his subscribers because there wasn't any other form of entertainment. And so there was kind of the line between entertainment and factual information got blurred. And so uh, a lot of these stories uh, were uh, exaggerated. And so it's very difficult since since many cases, these shootouts, the only account you have is that newspaper article. And you know that that editor has exaggerated other things. And so do you really believe what happened? And that's a good question. And there's really no way of resolving that. And so it's almost like you have to kind of go between the lines and see the truth for the exaggerations, it sounds like. Well, as all of us that are in the history business have to interpret things, and we have to come up with the most logical explanation, even though there's a lot of conflicting facts involved. And I have notes at the end of each of the stories that kind of go into Uh, some of the conflicting information so that the reader knows that I've picked one story path out of many story paths that were available to me. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. We're speaking with Kenneth Jessen. He's a Colorado author, and his latest book is called Frontier Colorado Gunfights, True Stories of Outlaws and Lawmen in the American West. 
I want to get back to some of the more famous gunfighters who milled around Colorado in the late 1800s. For example, Doc Holliday of Tombstone, Arizona fame and the OK Corral. He ended up in a gun battle in Leadville, actually. Yeah, and it's kind of interesting because he was suffering from tuberculosis. So probably 10,200 feet would be the last place you'd want to go if you're having breathing problems. But uh, he tried to make it in Denver, and he so for some reason he just got into trouble and so forth. So uh, eventually he moved to Leadville. You know, Leadville was a wide-open town, uh, lots of gambling halls. Uh, Holiday was an alcoholic, as most people know. And he was attracted to Leadville, and he got into a rather minor scrape. And the reason I put it in the book is because Holiday is so utterly famous, and also he's buried in the cemetery uh, above Glenwood Springs. But one of the interesting aspects of this is he was hunted by law enforcement in Arizona for first-degree murder, and he fled to Colorado, and uh, Governor Gilpin kind of gave him a sanctuary he kind of made denver a sanctuary city for <laughs> for doc holiday huh. and and allegedly wyatt earp actually traveled up to the capital and talked to gilpin and, and pleaded with gilpin to leave uh, doc holiday alone but then this gunfight happened and things were off the table then all bets were off and he was back on the run or no he didn't kill alan and so <laughs> if he'd killed alan maybe he'd be back on the run but you know, he became uh, progressively worse from tuberculosis, uh, which isn't surprising given Leadville's uh, elevation, right. and moved to Glenwood Springs where he passed away. And I've actually visited his tombstone uh, on the hillside overlooking Glenwood Springs. It's quite a hike to get up there. They have signs along the trail now. They've they've improved the trail. So you kind of get a history of Doc Holliday as you walk up there, which is a lot of fun. I did want to point out that the insanity plea uh, ran uh, back then, and that's been uh, a frustration for today and law enforcement and a feeling that uh, justice sometimes isn't served. But uh, there were several cases back then of uh, of defense uh, successfully arguing that the person was insane at the time that they committed first degree murder. Whether they were insane or not really wasn't the point. It just allowed them to win their case. Yeah, well, Samuel Derry is a great case. Uh, the He lived at the base of Mount Elbert, about 20 miles from Leadville, and he came out and killed a man directly that uh, was fouling the water above his ranch because he was placer mining. And placer mining involves uh, surface mining, and it uh, produces a lot of silt and so forth in the water. So when this fellow went through his property, he killed him. Well, it turned out it was a very prominent Denver and Leadville citizen, Derry was uh, charged with first-degree murder. But what the defense did was uh, was parade a whole bunch of witnesses before the jury, testifying that Derry was just uh, totally crazy out of his mind. He'd done all kinds of wild things and shot at hunters and did all of these crazy things. And by heck, that jury uh, acquitted him, and he went back and lived in his ranch house for 16 more years. So he got off. They got off. Yeah. Thanks so much for joining us, Kenneth. You bet. Kenneth Jessen is a Colorado author. His latest book is Frontier Colorado Gunfights, True Stories of Outlaws and Lawmen in the American West. We'll be back. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.
Fifty years ago, President Lyndon Johnson stunned the nation during a televised speech. I shall not seek, and I will not accept, the nomination of my party for another term as your president. The year was 1968. People couldn't believe the president would give up the reins of power. America was mired in Vietnam, an increasingly unpopular and unwinnable war that had drained Johnson's political capital. 68 was pivotal in many other ways, with the assassinations of Martin Luther King Jr., then Robert Kennedy. Throughout 2018, we'll look at how 1968 transformed Colorado, and we couldn't help but think about the music of that year, the soundtrack to all that tumult. It's why we invited Colorado bands into CPR's performance studio to record songs from the era. The first cover comes from the Denver psychedelic blues band Dragon Deer. It's the other one by the Grateful Dead. So we'd been covering the other one for a while. I was into it because it's sort of the history of the two massive counterculture movements: the Beats and the Hippies. Eric Halborg is Dragon Deer's frontman. He says this track came out of the acid test parties thrown by beat author Ken Kesey. Kesey threw the acid test and had the Grateful Dead basically soundtrack it. And that particular song, the other one, was talking about Neil Cassidy, who you know was Dean Moriarty in On the Road. I loved the fact that the Beats and the Hippies had a bridge built to them through acid, and sort of the evolution of beat poetry went into the hippie freeform music. And for Halberg, that doesn't feel like ancient history. I I actually met Ken Kesey. He was 17 at the Oregon County Fair. The encounter was brief, but he remembers offering Kesey a joint. He put it out on his tongue and he flipped it into the air, caught it in his mouth, and swallowed it. And, and he kind of looked at me and was like, "Wow, I just saw Ken Kesey," and gave me the big peace sign and then walked off. Spanish lady came to me. She lays on me this road. Denver's own Dragon Deer performing the Grateful Dead's 1968 tune, "The Other One," a counterculture anthem that echoes 50 years later. And that's our show for today. Our executive editor is Ryan Warner, managing producer Rachel Estabrook, producers Anthony Cotton, Andrew Dukakis, Michelle P. Fulcher, audio engineers Matt Hers, Michael Hughes, and Shane Rumsey. Follow us on Twitter at Colorado Matters and connect with us on Facebook CPR News. Of course, you can always email us. Click connect. At the top of cprnews.org, or comment at the bottom of articles on our website. And of course, we're also a podcast. 
Subscribe by clicking Colorado Matters at the top of CPRnews.org, then subscribe to podcast in the audio player. I'm Nathan Heffel. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Have a great day. Escaping through the lily field, I came across an empty space. Trembled and exploded, left a bus stop in its place.